podcast here on followoncricket.com. Chin my vaidya, Ashe Chavan, Anish Tal. It's, it's been a while, guys, but we're back at it. A lot to talk about. India, Australia, the ODI and T20 series wrapped up. On to the Test Series now. New Zealand and West Indies just wrapped up. Their tour, New Zealand, is taking on Pakistan next. And England, South Africa, a lot of shenanigans going on in that series, which got cut short. We'll start, though. With India and Australia, the ODI series goes to the Aussies. The T20 series goes to India. Your guys' biggest takeaways from both the limited over series? India certainly missed their a uh, couple of their key players. Um, you know, in the ODI series, uh, it would have been nice to have Rohit Sharma there, and it would have been nice to have a third fast bowler. You saw the Aussies really tee off on. Nadeep Saini in those first two matches, and TK Natrajan bowled much better in that third match. Um, but, I mean, that ODI series, man, it really was just about Australia's batting. Like, those first two matches, scoring like 380, 390, our batting lineup really didn't stand much of a chance, honestly. You have to bat absolutely perfectly to get there. And India did put up respectable totals, but, um, gosh, the bowling and the fielding, a real letdown after, uh, especially after a lot of these players have played in the IPL recently. You would think they would be in a bit, a bit better shape. So that was uh, that was overall disappointing. Um, and you know, other big takeaways for Australia. I mean, their their batting lineup. You know, David Warner, Steve Smith, and lo and behold, Glenn Maxwell finally showing out after a quiet summer in the UAE. So um, that's definitely a positive. That was definitely a positive for the Aussies. I think Australia definitely just showed up overall in the first two ODIs. Um, and I think that India, yeah, definitely they were struggling down under. Uh, they were having a little bit of issues with, I think their squad selection, to be honest, were just going between uh, the spinners, pace bowlers. And I think, yeah, like Anish said, they could have definitely used the pacer. A um, little bit of injury uh, injury worries, injury fitness troubles for India. Uh, we can talk about that Roy Sharma injury or non-injury. Uh, you know, BCC has been pretty shady about that. Uh, but overall, yeah, I think India was really kind of the, the main man, Rat Kohli, the chase master. You, you would have expected him to do a little bit more in the ODIs. Um, he, he he should have batted deeper. I think I think India also struggled with getting the tail, the, the lower order out again in the bowling department. Of course, the fielding was horrendous. Yeah, um, that's what I wanted to talk about. The fielding in the first match in particular, the first ODI, was an absolute disaster. I think there were at least four clear-cut catches that were dropped. And aside from that, because dropped catches can happen. We've all been in cricket matches where it just seems like nothing is going to stick to your hands. That's okay to a certain extent. But when you're letting you know ground balls go through you routinely, that's when it really gets annoying. I think India lost about probably 50 runs in that first match on their fielding alone. And you may think that's an exaggeration, but if you watched that match again, I think you could easily count 50 runs that India missed. So I think the fielding dramatically improved, and granted, it started at a very low point, so there wasn't much lower to go. But the fielding dramatically improved for India, which you can chalk that up to being in quarantine, not being in a live match situation. But like Anish said, the Australian batting lineup was phenomenal. At least in the first ODI, and, and even in the second ODI, they, they really turned it on at the end to get that big score. And Australia still scored well in the third ODI too, but I think Warner's absence really hurts them. And the big thing with David Warner is he's going to get every single run available 
running between the wickets. I mean, they do not stop running between the wickets. And that's what Australia really missed when David Warner left with that injury. So I think the batting lineup for Australia was absolutely clicking and there was nothing that India could do. The one good thing I will say for India to come out of the limited over series as a whole is the batting of Hardik Pandya. He has proven himself now to be a very capable limited overs batsman. And if he gets his bowling back on track, that's, you know, a top all rounder that India can throw out against some of these top teams. So Hardik Pandya's form is definitely something that India can bank on. I want to get to Rohit Sharma's injury. Ashay touched on it a little bit. Your thoughts on how it has been handled, Ashay? So I think that... I, I, here's my take on this. I think that Rohit has... India in general, but especially Rohit, um, has... I think he's had an overuse issue. Um, I know he plays out... Balls out every single Mumbai Indians game. Um, they play, what, like 16, 17 matches. They're always in the finals. They're playing extra matches. Um, this is a hot take, but I think that they kind of wanted to rest him because um, they knew they had the one seed in the tournament. Um, so they rested him knowing that they would win a couple of those last games. Maybe the last games didn't matter. And then he balled out in the final, scored a 50. And then he was shown... Then he, the, the BCI said that he quote-unquote re-aggravated it. Uh, but he was seen batting in the nets like the very next day. And he was... Like, I think a quote from him was like he was going all out in the nets, getting ready for Australia. But now, like, then, then there was, like, some fitness issues, and then there were some quarantining issues where he couldn't leave on time, quarantine required amount of period of time, and make it there for the ODIs. Um, so I think they have added him to the test squad, or there's something. I think they might be adding him to the test squad after the first test. Um, so I, I think it was something that was just brushed under the rug. I think they were just hiding, being shady about it. That's my take on it. Yeah, it's disappointing that we um, that we missed him. Hoping that he's back for the, some of the test series, but I'm actually with a Shay on all of this. I don't think it's really that hot of a take. Yeah, I don't think it's a hot take either. I think it's just funny how it's been handled, and I think some of the quotes coming out from the players reiterate that. You have BCCI saying one thing, and you have Virat Kohli basically saying, saying, "Yeah, we don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, we we haven't heard anything." And BCCI is like leaking these things out, basically saying that Rohit's still working his way back to 100%. And then like Ashay said, you see Rohit Sharma in the nets saying basically, yeah, I'm going as hard as I can getting ready for the Australia series. So if anybody really knows what's going on, please tell somebody because I don't think anybody knows outside of Rohit Sharma himself. I think he's the only one who really knows how healthy he is. And he looked fine in the IPL final. So... I don't really know where this injury occurred, how aggravating it is for him, but he looked okay. He looked like he could play a one-day match. Now, again, you don't want to rush a guy out there at less than 100% in Australia. It's a, it's a tough situation, and the, the reward is far less than the risk. That being said, India do need Rohit Sharma for this test series. This has suddenly become a very important test series for India. And I want to kind of preface this by saying there have been some jabs back and forth. In the ODI series, Gail Rahul, after David Warner's injury, basically said tongue-in-cheek that we hope David Warner is injured for a long time. And I'm sure Australia didn't take that well. Not so tongue-in-cheek, that's kind of messed up. 
In the T20 series, in the first T20, Ravi Jadeja in the final over got hit in the head with the ball and was evaluated for a concussion. He stayed in the game, faced the final three deliveries, scored nine runs off them, and then at the break got yanked for Yuzvendra Chahal. Now, Australia didn't question the legality of it, but basically questioned if India had broken the rules by Chahal not being a quote-unquote like-for-like player with Jadeja. So before we get into the test series and some of the tensions that might be there, Anish, as our resident medical expert, how long does it really take for concussion symptoms to be that different, to where one second there's no sign that a player could have suffered a severe head injury to all of a sudden, yeah, he's done, and it turns out Jadeja's done for the rest of the tour? Yeah, it's a, concussions are really challenging to diagnose and manage. Um, anytime you've got a major head injury, it can take seconds, minutes, or even days, days to weeks to manifest symptoms. So that's what makes it really challenging. Um, where I disagree a little bit in terms of how the situation was handled is, um, you know, new protocols, at least coming out in the United States for our sports here, recommend that uh players be removed from the activity immediately if there's any suspicion for a concussion, which clearly there was in um, Deja's situation, in order to be fully evaluated off the field. And this uh, this includes a range of neurologic tests and cognitive tests, and those simply aren't tests that they're able to conduct fully while on the field. So at least I will say in Jadeja's situation, it was a very limited amount of time that he was still back out to play before he was off the field. But even then, I don't think it was uh, it was appropriate. Now, in order to rule him out for the series, you know these symptoms can linger and linger, and so uh, it's almost a day by day basis where you're checking in with the athletes to see how they're feeling. And clearly, he can't be feeling too well if they ruled him out for an entire series. I think there's a very simple solution to this that the ICC should implement because they've implemented this concussion protocol and. The substitution of a player is allowed. So there's really no question about the legality, and Australia wasn't questioning that. The like-for-like like player discussion is something else, because obviously Jahal facing those last three deliveries with the bat, maybe you get a different result. Australia only lost that match by 10 runs or 11 runs, I think. So maybe their approach changes at the end if the total is different. So I think there's a very simple solution to this. Maybe it requires you to carry a couple extra players with you on tours, But every match outside of the 11 players that you have playing that match, you designate five additional players, a left-handed batsman, a right-handed batsman, an all-rounder, a left-handed bowler, and a right-handed bowler. And based on whoever gets hurt, if the situation calls for it, there are five like-for-like options based on who, uh, who you get. So if that occurs, if that's the rule that gets implemented, which I think should, there would be no debate on a like-for-like because you can only substitute one player in. Now, carrying that over into the test series, this has suddenly become a huge test series for India, and we'll get into why a little bit later. But as we preview this test series, what are you guys looking for between India and Australia in what should be one of the most highly anticipated series of the year? So what I'm looking for is really India is going to be fielding a kind of youth lineup, to be honest. They're having a lot of their veterans not in. Uh, I know Virat Kohli is 
out after the first test. And uh, Rohit, um, we don't know when it will be joining. Um, no Shikhar Dhawan. I think they're just having kind of a lineup that is based on youngsters. And I'm not even sure if uh, a few of them have toured Australia before. So it's going to be kind of a rough series for India. And that being said, I think India is still fired up. They, they won two years ago under Kohli's captaincy. They have a lot of, like, Mark Agarwal, Prithvi Shah the opener. Shubman Gill is new at the Test Series. Uh, Rishabh Bent, you know how he fares in Test. He scored a century last year in Test cricket in the past, but he still has those inconsistencies. Uh, so I think if you're, if you're previewing this, I think that Australia might, might have a hand up in this series for sure. I definitely think Australia has a hand up, and I they have to be the favorites to to win the series here. I think India is just missing more, missing more of their important pieces, and they're also playing in Australia. So, well, I think what it really comes down to is how will uh, how will our young batsmen fare against these Australian bowlers? You know, these are fiery bowlers that can bowl short, bowl with pace, um, and really get a ball in your business. Both. Uh, with the ball and with their words, and, and so I, you know, I'm, I, I worry especially about this top order. You know, what are how are our openers going to handle this type of environment? Um, and you know, again, the lack of a genuine all rounder for India is really, uh, really troubling. Going here into the Test series, like we saw, the team's balance in the ODI and the T20 wasn't quite there. And you know, with uh, no Jadeja, no Hardik Pandya. Um, there's really India really doesn't have a true all rounder in the test side, and so that's going to be another big question: is are they if they're going to play seven batsmen? You know, none of really none of India's batsmen here are bowlers, so you're just going to have four four bowlers toiling away in the Australian sun, and I also don't think that's going to work out too well for them. One more thing uh, is there's not there's really there's a pretty good chance India doesn't even carry a spinner. Um, Ashwin and Kuldeep are there, but for a lot of the pitches, I don't know if having a specialist spinner is is a good option. So that leaves like your your bowling, your bowling, your pace bowling includes uh, Umrah and Shami. Then that leaves you Umesh Yadav, who I guess he does have experience playing a day night test in Australia, but he doesn't really inspire confidence. And then there's Navdeep Saini and Mohammad Tiraj, neither of whom have played a test match before. So pretty much an inexperienced team from one to eleven for India here. And that doesn't inspire the most confidence of a repeat win from 2018. Yeah, I don't think India is going to win this series. And you mentioned the inexperience with the batting lineup, the question marks over whether they can have enough bowling to avoid fatigue. But I do think the one saving grace for India is that Warner is out. And his home summer last year was ridiculous. And if he is unable to be there to do that again, because really no one else for the Australian batting lineup last summer outside of Labuschagne had a great coming out party. And, and he's still there and Smith is still there. So the middle order is still intact. But at the top, Australia no longer has that guy who's going to score a triple century, which Warner has done. So from hold India's on, perspective... On. I don't think you can just say that outright because they still have talent that Steve Smith and Labuschagne... Right, right. So... So they have the middle order still, which is which is what I said. But at the top, they don't have that guy who's going to pour on 300. So I think for India, they have a chance to get at Smith and Labuschagne a lot more often if they can remove those openers quickly, which they have a good chance of doing 
given that David Warner is not there to put on 50-60 runs consistently. That being said, I do think Australia handily take this test series. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll check out New Zealand and the West Indies and England and South Africa. You're listening to the Follow On podcast here on followoncricket.com. Welcome back into the Follow On podcast here on followoncricket.com. You can check us out on Facebook at the Follow On. Follow us on Twitter at the Follow On. And of course, all of our content at followoncricket.com. We're talking about New Zealand and the West Indies and then moving on to England and South Africa. New Zealand absolutely dominated the West Indies in the T20 series and then in the two tests. It wasn't even close in any of the matches, really. And there was one rainout, I believe, in the T20 series. So that was the saving grace for the West Indies. But New Zealand has been dominant at home in the test format. There's there's just no getting around that. I believe in their last 15 tests, they have 11 wins and four draws. The last 15 home tests, that is. So they don't lose tests at home very often. And the reason this is significant is because the World Test Championship point system has been switched up for this current cycle because of the pandemic. So instead of total points, it is now a percentage of points that you've won. So New Zealand are climbing very close to India now because of this shift. And honestly, it should have been this way from the beginning because teams play a different number of tests and the point system was all messed up to begin with. But now... It's no longer total points. Yeah, there's issues. I feel like there's issues with both of those because percentage of points won, or percentage of points won out of the ones available, uh, is also kind of skewed towards teams who play less tests. Like that being like New Zealand actually typically doesn't play that many tests. Neither do the three biggest are obviously England, Australia, India, but like West Indies and, and Pakistan, they don't play that many tests. So, I mean, there's, there's flaws in both of those methodologies. I think there's less flaws in win percentage because the more games you play, the better chances you have of improving that win percentage as well. So I think there's, there's less flaws in this one given the structure that it's in, right? If everybody played the same amount of test matches, then you have total points, and, and every yeah. match was worth the same amount of points, then total points works because it's essentially the same thing. I'll look more into this, but I, that's, that's just what I thought off the top of my head. I didn't know that they shifted this. Recently. No, yeah, no, it, it has shifted because the pandemic has canceled a lot of tours. So the, the total points weren't there for teams to catch up. Now, the yeah, reason... Yeah. Uh, regardless of that, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, if India, I mean, New Zealand really just whitewashed the West Indies, so... They're creeping up, and like we like we predicted, if India loses, then I think they're at the top. Because what if what if India gets what if India loses like three zero or two zero in a four match series? Then that's just that's just toast for them. Then so India has a series with Australia and a series with England coming up. So those are India's remaining series. New Zealand has, I believe, a two game set with Pakistan, who has come under heavy scrutiny for their disregard of New Zealand's COVID regulations. But we'll get to that in a minute. If New Zealand sweeps Pakistan, which it looks like they're going to do, 
because New Zealand has been, like I said, completely dominant at home, then India has a tall task ahead of them in terms of getting the results necessary to be in the top two. Because it looks like Australia, if India loses against Australia, then Australia would have the margin. So that Australia would remain at one. But there's a legitimate chance now for New Zealand to get in because of this adjustment that there wasn't before. Because on total points, it looked like they weren't going to get there. But this is now interesting because it creates a real race for this World Test Championship final between Australia, India, New Zealand, and England, which wasn't there before. So before we dive too much into what New Zealand can bring on the test side, I want to ask you guys this. Has this been more beneficial for test cricket, even though we saw so many series get canceled and things had to be juggled around? Was this actually beneficial because of what it created? You're asking, was the World Test Championship beneficial for test cricket? I'm asking whether the readjustment of the way the World Test Championship was being awarded worth it for test cricket now, given that there's going to be a four-team race for two spots, which it looked like there was only going to be India and Australia running away on total points. Well, I would say absolutely, because if you ask a casual fan, um, if you give them the, whatever, the nine or ten test sides and ask them who the best test sides were and who you think would make it a race to go to like the semi slash that final at Lords, you would, a normal, like a normal fan would say on the teams you mentioned, that's like India, Australia, England, and New Zealand. And I think that's, that makes it more fair then because then the teams that play less, like you said, have a shot at it. And then you really have like a true, more balanced way of measuring that if what you're saying is correct. So I would say yes. At the end of the day, the Test World Championship was made to add more stake to the matches to garner more interest in watching a five-day game. And what does this change in the rule does? It adds more interest. It puts more stake on the matches that Australia and India are playing. It adds more to the matches that India and England will be playing. And so anything that can raise the stakes will uh, gain more interest. Now, Fortunately, people are mostly sitting at home and isolating, so they'll hopefully have more time to key into these matches and watch, uh, hopefully, some more higher-intensity cricket. Back to New Zealand and the West Indies specifically. New Zealand's pace bowling. I mean, they had Trent Bolt, they had Tim Southey, they had Neil Wagner, and then you throw Kyle Jamieson in. Is this the best pace attack in the world now? I know we've talked about South Africa's pace attack. We've talked about... Australia's pace attack, we've talked about India having some good seamers. Is this the best pace attack in the world? Um, at home, absolutely, certainly is, because they really, really can take advantage of those high-bounce greenish wickets that stay hard as the, you know, as the fifth, fourth, fifth day go on. And, I mean, granted, like, they're playing West Indies who aren't exactly, who weren't exactly uh, ready f- to face this. Um, they have their own issues, but I think I think they, they just kind of steamrolled through those lineups. Uh, they only batted once each test, and yeah, I, I would say it is, especially at home. Yeah, are we talking home or neutral site? Because if you're playing in New Zealand, then absolutely I would, that would be the lineup I'd want to face the least. If we're playing in a neutral location, you know, such as maybe like UAE, for example, I still would probably put Australia's pace attack over New Zealand, but New Zealand is definitely creeping up there. At home, for sure. 
neutral site, I think it's close, but I would still probably lean Australia, but it's definitely closer than it was maybe five or six months ago. On to New Zealand and Pakistan, and the big story here, as it seems to be across all these tours, is one team struggling to deal with the rules. Pakistan was basically disregarding COVID regulations in New Zealand. That's probably the easiest way to put it. There were some questions about the testing, how people were allowed on planes, when they tested positive, how the virus got around. The bottom line is that there was a breakdown somewhere. Anish, as our resident medical expert, this seems like a broken record at this point. Like, what what more can people do to to take this seriously? So, can I can I insert a statistic into there that's mind blowing? Sure. There was nine cases on the Pakistan team of COVID, and when they were in New Zealand, and that accounted for thirty three percent of New Zealand's total cases in the country. Unbelievable. Because, as you know, they're a small country and they really, they didn't have any local transmission for the past, like, four months. They did a really good job of containing this virus. Obviously, there's something to be said, small country, island nation, whatever. But, yeah, like, so Pakistan legitimately brought a third of the cases to New Zealand. It's frankly really disappointing from the Pakistan squad. You mean, everyone in the world that doesn't recognize that there's a pandemic is going on, uh, there's a special place in a special part of the earth for them. But, and maybe Pakistan, this team, the way they're behaving, uh, belong there. Sometimes what it takes is just a personal, personal uh, relation with the, with the pandemic to finally take it seriously. That's definitely what we've, we've been seeing. Some people are like, oh, like it's not affecting me. So it's not a big deal. So, you know, I tell you, if one of the Pakistan players gets really sick or, like one of their loved ones gets hurt or dies from this, then maybe that's that, maybe that's a kick that they'll need to take this a little more seriously. Yeah, and I don't want to say that they're not taking it seriously. I think there was, again, a breakdown in where the virus came from, how it got on the plane, and and how it spread essentially was a was unknown. And that's where the biggest issue was. And then you could see that Pakistan wasn't taking the quarantine seriously in New Zealand. So that's what was kind of irking the New Zealand authorities. I think it was more of a PCB. It's the Pakistan Cricket Board itself uh, working in conjunction with the government. I think they're just dealing with incomplete data. They don't maybe have the best data. And like, yeah, you just don't know what's going on there. I don't know if anybody really trusts PCB or the government itself to not be corrupt and, you know, send their players over regardless of how they're testing. Yeah, so I think there's there's a little more to the picture than just, you know, the, the players were completely, you know, disregarding the protocols and, and were nonchalant about it. I think there's, again, the data sets are incomplete. I think the testing has been uh, less than stellar. But the bottom line is, following this whole situation, Pakistan basically threatened, not threatened, but hinted at possibly pulling out of the tour because they didn't want to deal with the quarantine period and the quarantine period was taking too much of a mental toll on their players. Now, I don't want to necessarily get into whether they should have you know, pulled out of the tour or not, but this does echo some of the sentiments that Jason Holder had said earlier and continued to say after this New Zealand tour that Owen Morgan said after England's bio bubbles that this bubble-to-bubble cricket is not sustainable, and it is taking a real toll on the players. 
and these players are putting on matches that we don't really know whether they're necessary or not. How necessary is it to play the sport right now? Because this is the third team to have mentioned major fatigue and specifically mental fatigue in the bubble and during the quarantine periods. Well, on one hand, you definitely feel for them. Like Jason Holder himself said that, you know, none of those, none of the West Indies players have been home for six months. They've been like within themselves. Um, and even, even like American sports that have been going on, even like European soccer, American sports, especially like NBA people were saying uh, they were getting tired just being in hotel, uh, being away from home people who were their loved ones for like four months at a time. And um, I think that, I think that as a cricketer, as an athlete, like you kind of, you, if you, if you agree to go on a tour, like obviously it's a lot of uncertainties. Like you don't know that you're away from home for six months. There's going to be fatigue. He also had a, a good point about the umpire thing where he said, uh, if players can do this and umpires also should be able to quarantine and stay in their bubbles. But I think, I think overall this, this quarantine bubble period adds more fatigue and more wear and tear mentally and physically than a normal tour would have in a non-COVID situation. So I think that it comes it kind of comes with the times. I think they just got to suck it up at this point. Like everyone else in the world is isolating. If you want to play international cricket and continue that, then you have to do it safely. It's, I mean, traveling to another country is a huge deal especially in island countries, such as like in the situation with Pakistan and New Zealand. And yeah, if New Zealand goes back into crisis because uh, some foreigners came in and basically brought the virus back to the country, it's a huge deal. Um, that's a that's a big deal. And so they, like anyone else, they have to tra- take it seriously. Many jobs are being affected. If you, if you want to play, then you play the way that the generation is expecting right now given the circumstances if you don't want to play then sit on your couch and hang out with your family and do you know do that you know it's hard it's hard for everyone this is part of your job there's other people out there losing their jobs because of because of covid so um you know either do it right or don't do it there's obviously a monetary stake that would say keep playing but there is a side to these players that is saying, you know, is this worth it? There is that question of, is this worth it? And it's now, this is the third team that has very publicly said, you know, we're, we're feeling the effects of it to the point of possibly pulling out of the tour, which would have sent a lot of things into chaos. Another COVID-related incident happened in the England-South Africa series which lasted all of three T20 matches. England took that series handily and looked like they do the best side in the world still at this point. But on the morning of the first ODI, a South Africa player tested positive for coronavirus. That match was postponed and later canceled. And then England pulled out of the tour entirely questioning South Africa's bubble protocols and whether those protocols were being followed. So this is really the first tour since the restart that has gone way off the rails because of COVID. Pakistan had trouble with the protocols. 
South Africa had trouble with protocols in their home country. Is this worse than Pakistan's situation? I mean, it's pretty it's pretty bad. I mean, it takes a takes a lot to cancel a whole tour and so it's unfortunate that after being in a bubble someone ended up testing positive. That also speaks to the danger of the virus itself. Um, and the test we have available, it's possible that the virus is also festering and uh, finally uh, finally the, the test changed. But, you know, this is something that, you know, you would uh, be naive to say that you couldn't see this coming, at least somewhere, not necessarily in this series specifically, but there's definitely the risk of with, with how transmissible this disease is. Um, when you get a large group of player to, players together, just one small thing can throw can throw everything off. And so, you know, here it's this one isolated series, but it easily could have been India, Australia. It could have easily been uh, Western New Zealand. It could have happened in the NFL, the NBA. So, you know, it it, it is what it is. I think the IPL did an excellent job, actually. Uh, they had, before people were called up, even if they're called up middle of the season, uh, they, had, they were quarantining in their own homes and home countries. Uh, what did the IPL have, like zero cases, right? One case, I think? Well, the IPL had a lot of cases in the quarantine period, specifically yeah, to one team, but not during the tournament itself, correct. Yeah. I think the yeah, issues... Obviously, it's easier to have bubbles when you're playing on two grounds, but still. Yeah, I think the issues here is that the data set in South Africa regarding COVID is, yeah. is hard to kind of put, put your finger on exactly. And with Australia and New Zealand, they've done a good job containing cases. So it's hard to compare those countries to South Africa. I think South Africa has done a okay job, but again, the data set, we don't know. The testing facilities, we don't know. It's, it's not uh, something that we can say with certainty. That wasn't the only thing that happened, though, in the England-South Africa series of note. This is a podcast that is just full of shenanigans going around different tours in the world. And this is an example of analytics coming into cricket. During the T20 series, someone in the England dressing room was placing placards on the wall with a letter and a number for Owen Morgan to read. It was basically like it would say 1A or 2B or whatever the code was. And it was basically an analytics decision that said, you know, do this in the next situation. And South Africa is questioning whether that should be allowed or not. Now, in other sports, we see analytics come into play on a fairly regular basis. In the NFL, NBA, there are coaches calling plays regularly. So the involvement of coaching is there in other sports, but it really in cricket is not there. Once you're on the field, it's the 11 players. That's it. Do you think that this should be allowed? Do you think it's good for the game? Or do you think that this needs to stop? Should not be allowed. Not good for the game. Not comparable between NFL and NBA coaches who call plays up here. It's the captain um, reacting in live real life time to the situation. Um, like captains are captains because they're leaders and they know the game inside and out. Um, they've studied the situation, potential situations, how to bowl, how to set the field for batsman combinations. 
um, who to send up the banning order, etc. And I think it should stay the same uh, because I, I think that's that's how the game has been played. I know it's a bad argument, but that's how the game has been played for you know 200 years, and that's how people are you know that's how people are expected to play it. So I don't know if you can really have I don't even know if there's plays that can be called so to speak, like or like different situations like would a coach just send the guy in like a runner and they would tell oh this combo. This combo of like uh, Matthew Wade and David Warner, they like to hit on over cow corners. So like two fielders, I don't know. I don't even know how that would work. I'm in a bit of a different camp. I think that we've already seen cricket becoming uh, more strategized, especially with the development of analytics, and we're also seeing them already allowing players outside of the eleven on the field become more and more involved in the game. Just look at the IPL. Um, they've even commercialized a Seattle strategic timeout where you have the whole uh, leadership of the team on the field together with the team, but then you have, uh, you know, you have uh, the power play, you have the, you have the inning, you have breaks, um, you have times when like a runner comes onto the field to pass along a mess or to give some bottle of water and to pass along a message. And, uh, you know, also in these T20 matches, they have the dugouts right along the boundary. So I'm sure that the co- coaches and things, coaches are shouting different things during the match as well. So I really think the era of uh, cricketers, uh, the, the captain being the independent decision maker, are kind of going by the wayside. There's certainly something to be said for what Ashe is getting at in terms of let the players play the game. And what, if they make a mistake, then that's it. And that's how it should be done. But like Anish said, there has been this analytics, not revolution, but introduction into the game that previously wasn't there. And I think that that has been good for the game. I think it has allowed a lot of players who would otherwise have not been given the opportunity to play, playing in games for a very specific skill set that they bring. Now, there is a question of equity because England has this analytics team that they can deploy in certain situations. Does, for example, Bangladesh have the same team available at their disposal? We don't know that, but chances are that some of these smaller countries who are running on very tight budgets don't have this sort of facility available to them. And so there is a question of equity where England are getting this extra information and England are the only ones who have sort of very outwardly done this versus a smaller country like, say, a Bangladesh or a Sri Lanka that isn't getting this live, real-time information to them. That is a legitimate question, in my opinion. But like Anish said, I think there has been an increased uh, presence of analytics, and I think it has been good for the game. So I would say that Maybe you're not allowed to like publicly hold up placards outside of the dressing room window to tell a captain what to do step by step. But you can have, you know, the drinks break come, the guys come in and and tell the the captain what to do. You can have a runner ask for, uh, or sorry, you can have a batsman ask for like a change of gloves or a change of bat. And you can get that information out there. So there are ways to get that information out there. But I, I think the outward, like, hey, do this in this situation, I think that might have taken it, in my opinion, a little bit too far. But we've seen, you know, Seattle strategic timeout. That's basically a, a team briefing in the middle of the ground at this point. It's what it's become. 
the Big Bash has introduced an X-Factor player, a guy that you can sub in in the middle of the game to basically take part in the team. I mean, that's totally analytics-based. There's no rhyme or reason for that in the regular flow of cricket. So I think I'm with Anish on this. I would say it's here to stay, but maybe they need to to do a better job of, of going about how they introduce analytics in a more equitable way in the game. There's there's a lot to be said about that equitable analytics. Uh, I think there's a big differentiator, and I and when I say that I mean that there is a big differentiator between like a dugout holding up placards, etc. Because they're seeing like the video analytics. Um, that's I think that's the same thing as something that's not allowed. It's the same thing as a batsman uh, going to the, D, uh, the, the the video replay for the LBW. Uh, because like like he can't look to the dugout after they've seen the video. They'll tell him whether or not to appeal to the video. Well, you only have 15 stuff. seconds in the DRS, so I yeah, don't think that's yeah, a yeah. I don't think that's a big question. I don't think they're using yeah. it for for decision review. I don't think that's. I think, it, I think it's the same concept because you're going to the dugout or the whatever the coach on the side who has more information than what the people are getting on the field. I'm perfectly fine with the breaks, like the runner bringing an info, whatever. Um, that's totally fine. It's not during play. It's not like in the middle of an over after like a ball has been pulled. Uh, like no one is telling a batsman, oh, he just pulled two Yorkers. Like watch out for a bouncer because that's what he's done in the past. Um, that's something different. So I think I will concede that part. You know my views on DRS. And, and reviewing umpire decisions. I mean, I think everything should be reviewed. Get it right. So I, I don't think that that's a question in terms of analytics. But yeah, I mean, outwardly holding up a, a placard in the middle of an over or, you know, after an over to say like, hey, do this next. I don't know if that's necessarily fair. It's mostly a breach of the spirit of the game at the end of the day. I don't even know if it's a breach of the spirit of the game. I think where I, where I see it, is you're basically allowing countries who have bigger budgets, who operate their cricket boards with bigger budgets, an extra facility that you're not offering. Like, if every country was given an analytics team, if every board was given an analytics team at the ICC's cost, that would be great. I'd be all for that. Because then everybody has the same facility at their disposal. Whether the analytics people get it right or not, that's how that's on how talented they are. But some people won't have that opportunity, and it's mainly a financial thing. So I don't think it's a question of whether they wish to adopt it or not. I think it's a question of whether they have it in their budget to do so. And like I said, I mean, most countries are able to fund this, but it'll be some of those smaller countries that won't necessarily see the benefits of it. So I think there are still ways to get that information out there to the players and to the captain without basically outwardly holding up a sign. Yeah, but let's let's see how it goes. That'll do it for us here at the Follow On Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and as always, followoncricket.com.